0: Do you remember Gavin, the affection-starved youngster fond of telling nonsensical stories? Do you remember the chicken lady, a half-bird, half-human sexaholic, or Buddy Cole, the gay socialite? 30 years since television viewers first got their first look at the kids in the hall comes the definitive look at the career and impact of that comedy troupe. The Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy by Paul Myers with a foreword by Seth Myers is Everything You've Ever Needed to Know About the Kids in the Hall in One Authorized Book, and Paul Myers joins us today. Hey, Richard. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. It, it's funny sitting here because uh, we are sitting just mere blocks away from where we first met, and I think it's almost 40 years ago.
1: Oh, my God. 38 Wait. years ago. But we're, we're both too young for that. I
0: right? know. But yeah, I that that's
1: true. Do you want to say where we met, or yeah, Mister that...
0: Green Jeans? It's not there anymore. It's gone.
1: Yeah, Richard, you were a, you were a door host when I met you, I was. and I was a busboy, and yeah. you hit me with some uh, menus. That's right. I've told this story way too many times. <laughs> you hit me with some menus, and I knew that you'd be my friend after that.
0: Yeah, in a in a in a in a playful way.
1: Oh no, no, but that was what yeah. it was. You said get to work, <laughs> <laughs> but I could tell and, you weren't my
0: boss. And, and no, the thing is, yeah. I was probably about 17 years old or something yeah, like exactly. that. I was
1: I was a kid. I think we were all very very young. Yeah, yeah. That was a long time yeah. ago. But yeah, and then since then, you've become the Richard cross we know and love. <laughs> the brand. The uh, brand. And, and
0: you have become the author of uh, a number of books, plus a musician who continues to make records. Mm-hmm. And and you live in California now. You live yes. a long way away. That's true. Uh, but I wanted to, to bring you back to 1985. It's the winter of 1985. And the first time that you saw the kids in the hall.
1: Oh, my God. So, I mean, the, the short version of the story is uh, I'd been taking Second City Workshops and my uh, my brother had done that. My brother Mike Myers, let's get that out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> and it it, it it factors into this story quite a bit, yeah. actually. But, uh, so I was around comedy. I'm a comedy nerd. My two brothers, Peter and Mike, are both comedy nerds, and I'm a comedy nerd. And we're so he takes second city workshops. It looks like fun. So mm-hmm. I take second city workshops. He goes off to the touring company of Second City, but I get there just as Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald are taking courses. I'm not in their class, but I'm in the hallway between classes. Right. And Dave Foley walks up to me and goes, Hey, you're Mike Myers' brother. I People say I'm a young Mike Myers, which is a joke because they're the same <laughs> age, right? And, but the, what they meant was you could be the next Mike yeah, Myers. And, yeah, yeah. and and that blew my mind anyway that somebody even within this little – because Mike wasn't famous, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but only within that little academic group of yeah, people. Yeah. And I said, oh, my God, I uh, Mike mentioned you. Actually, you're Dave Foley. And then Kevin, Kevin, who was much larger then and had big curly hair – he had a big head of curly hair and, uh, and you know, they looked like uh, Laurel and Hardy together because Kevin was much larger and they were talking and they said, we're doing theater sports and we're doing this other stuff and then I would go see them. No, I was about to go see them and a woman I was dating at the time had gone to York University with a guy named Scott Thompson. And he was in the theater department there, but she was in the film department. And Paul Bellini, who's a character yeah, in the yeah. book also, was a film guy who'd filmed Scott. So, so Shirley, it's her name, yeah. knew, knew um, Scott. So she said, oh, my friends are playing at the Rivoli Club. And I said, my friends are playing at the Rivoli Club. And it turns out they were the same. So I'd missed some of the earlier uh, formative years before Scott had joined mm-hmm. the Kids in the Hall. But I got there just as they were starting as the five piece. And uh, it was incredible. Like they, 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 the room was electric. It was a bar on Queen Street West in Toronto, and they used the whole bar. Like they would have the stage, and they would have lights by the bar as well, and they would have. The and it r- and it's smaller. It probably
0: seats a hundred people, hundred fifty yeah. people at the most, probably
1: right. Yeah, and it was. At some nights it wasn't packed. Some mm-hmm. nights it was like you know fifteen people, and they're up there just doing black box theater with no props and no you know maybe minimal costumes mm-hmm. possible. I know that they used to wear. Um, a long red sweater when they were supposed to be the woman in the sketch, so it'd be like the the whoever had the red sweater right. was the girl, you That's know? funny. And they called it the girl in those days. Uh, now we call it the woman. Yes. Uh, but uh, and uh, you know Scott had brought his bag of wigs and, and dresses. Uh, eventually, so they started dressing more. But uh, and then I remember this one night I knew they were going to be famous. It was like uh, or knew they were going to be successful anyway. They had it was a winter blizzard and uh i i walked through snow banks for like miles to get there uh you know because i lived about two miles away, mm-hmm. or maybe a mile in yeah. Queen Street, and, and it was that kind of thing where the, the, the snow is piled so high that you had to walk down the streetcar track. Yeah, yeah. Just hard to get around. It was yeah. bad. And I thought, nobody's going to go to see the kids in the hall tonight. I don't even know. In those days, you didn't phone ahead. Right. I So I thought, I'm going to go to the club. There's in no the... website to check. Yeah, exactly. And so I walked there, and as I get closer to the club, I see that there's lights on. Yep, they're, they're open. And then I see like steam coming out of the door, so I know there's people inside. And uh, and then they did an incredible show, and it was packed. And it was packed on a blizzard night. And I was like, okay, so we're not we're all kind of part of this club watching this 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 thing happen, like Beatlemania almost, except mm-hmm. it was only a uh, hundred people. And then over time, they got more and more people, and there was lineups and sellouts, and you know.
0: And uh, you touched on, it. You, you mentioned Mike, and I'm not going to dwell on him at all cool. uh, for this note. But I wanted to talk. You, you said you grew up, you were all comedy geeks, yeah. And and you you grew up in a in a family. Let's sort of contextualize yeah, this absolutely. for people that might not yeah. know. You grew up in a family where your dad would wake you up in the middle of the night if there was a funny movie on yeah, at midnight I, on CBC. Well, C,
1: uh, I think CBC was showing Monty Python and uh, and Monty Python's Flying Circus. <laughs> and if you don't know it, look it up. Um, they. Uh, and 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 my dad would – like we'd have to go to bed, you know, at a kid's time to go to bed. And he'd say, oh, but you can stay up to watch Python because yeah. my dad's English and they were funny. My dad was a fan of the Goons and, uh, you know, all that era of – Spike uh, Milligan. Spike Milligan, oh, yeah. absolutely. My parents went to see Spike Milligan in Toronto when he toured here in the wow. 70s, you know. <laughs> uh, so So we knew that there was something there. And I think there is something to be said for the parental approval and seeing my dad so pleased to be laughing at comedy – it really affected all of us and i certainly wanted to be a comedian for a long time realized i'm not really a performer i mean i have a sense of humor but i'm not really a comedy performer but my younger brother did so and my older brother peter is very subversively funny and he's funny in his own right but again we're not comedy performers like the way our younger brother is you know
0: i remember at your dad's funeral that it was a fairly solemn affair as as these things are and uh the i think you guys spoke in order of age. So I yeah, think right. Peter spoke first and yeah. then you and then then Mike at the end. Yeah. And uh, I think Peter said, you know, our dad had a great sense of humor and told a joke and no one knew what to do. Right,
1: right, exactly. You don't laugh exactly. at a funeral. Well, exactly.
0: And then you continued. And then Mike, and by the time we got to the end of it, people were laughing. And I just remember walking away from that. And and I think we went out afterwards. Yeah. And, 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 and I remember walking away from that and saying, that's what this should be. A celebration of life, a celebration yeah. of the thing that, that sort of brought everyone together, which was the humor.
1: Well, that's funny you should say that because, the, you know, there is a, a relation between – George Carlin used to do a bit about this too, about being in church, I think. Mm-hmm. There's a relation between the suppression of laughter and the outright explosion of laughter. And so funerals are very funny to some people. Yeah, yeah. Like they're not fun. They're not fun for sure. But there's definitely – the word fun is in there though. <laughs> uh, but um, – but, you know, like there's a lot of comedy sketches that are predicated on the scene being the funeral and, yeah. you know, being not allowed to laugh. And so there's definitely that. And I think you're right, though. Like, it, it is a tribute to my father. A lot of stuff is in in my life, too, is a tribute mm-hmm. to my father. My father loved music and I'm a musician. And uh, my mother used to read biographies out loud at the dinner table, which is a, a, an eccentric thing to do. Yeah. But, um, but I mean, I've written them. three. I've written four biographies. And uh, I don't know what I'm doing there. But, you know talk to my therapist, but uh, but yeah, there's definitely, um, and that is part of why I wrote this book. I got to say, not that's, that's not a bad bringing mm-hmm. around. Actually, I'm very aware of the fact that there's a bit of parenthetical autobiography to this right. because it's a scene that I was immersed in as a musician and as a comedy nerd. So I was watching the kids in the hall develop this thing that became kind of like the Beatles in Liverpool Mm -hmm. in the sense that other bands, other troops were starting. The Vacant Lot, Corky and the Juice Pigs were here. There was... uh, uh, Dan Redican had already done the Frantics here and they were like all working and there was more and more comedy, which by the way is happening again, at least in Toronto that Mm -hmm. I know. I've just been here a few days and I've seen people are telling me and Bruce McCullough told me that there's a lot of sketch comedy that you know, just is, there's more sketch comedy than there are venues for it.
0: Yeah, that's right. But there's more venues now than there were. There were, before. yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm speaking with Paul Myers. The book is called "The Kids in the Hall: One Dumb Guy." Uh, One dumb guy is a is a great subtitle. Yeah, and <laughs> and it comes from uh, a quote from yes. Kevin
1: McDonald. Yeah, well, Kev- Kevin said, you know, he was talking about how smart some of the guys in the troupe are, and he said, to be honest, we're all five smart guys, but when we make business decisions, we're one dumb guy. We add up to one <laughs> dumb guy. And then that came up later. Kevin Kevin said it, and then Bruce said it again in another interview. And I started to write. I sort of wrote it in a margin somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I had originally called. I had, My working title for this book was It's a Fact, which is um, uh, from the kids in the hall. Yeah, a little yeah. haired girl would come up and pop up and say some arcane fact. And uh, my publishers and a few people were saying, it's not the not the. Best title, and it isn't, but it was a because I wanted it to be a book of truth and, yeah, yeah. and it's a fact. It could have been called 30 Hellens Agree also, but <laughs> uh, uh, and then something they said, Come up with another one. And I said, Well, the one I wrote down, you don't want it's called One Dumb Guy, and everyone loved it. So, and now it looks good on the title too because mm-hmm. there it says the kids in the hall in block letters, but then it's sort of like uh, script yeah. underneath it just says One Dumb Guy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it, of course, I've done events with I did an event here in Toronto with Bruce and Scott. And it, we build it as one dumb guy and two kids in the hall. That's funny. So I become the dumb guy.
0: You know? <laughs> now, when you were thinking about doing this, the, the career is lengthy and it is filled with twists and turns. We've only got about a minute left, uh, but tell me a little bit about doing the research. I know you spent a year probably doing interviews with these guys and uh, everyone connected with them.
1: Absolutely. I I, uh, I think it was over a year, because sometimes it would take months to get to a location to do an interview or... Like just because they were busy, and you know, yeah. and Mark's doing Superstore and NBC, and and people are on the road all the time. So yeah, it took a long time. And I talked to like Lorne Michaels, and I talked to people who were the script, uh, pe- not the script, the uh, wigs and props people right. on the show. And I talked to their original producer, and I talked to people that booked them in the theaters, and and I got comedians like Fred Armisen and Jon Apato and Paul Feig to talk to me, and it was, and they're all huge fans. Yeah, so yeah. so there's a lot of collating of lots of information.
0: I'm speaking with Paul Myers. The book is called The Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy. It's available wherever you buy books online uh, or in brick and mortar stores. Forward by Seth Myers. When we come back, I want to find out what the most surprising thing that you learned uh, with all these interviews. It's not surprising that Judd Apatow is a fan of The Kids in the Hall. Uh, I'd like to know what really, really surprised Paul Myers. The book, the Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy. More when we come back. Stay with us. The book is called The Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy. The author is Paul Myers. There's a foreword by Seth Myers. And when we left the story, we were talking about uh, some of the interviews you did. Paul Figg directed Bridesmaids and Ghostbusters. Yeah, and Freaks and Geeks. Yeah. Yeah, no, and <laughs> Freaks and geeks. Uh, big fan of uh, The Kids in the Hall. Uh, Judd Apatow what goes on Seth Myers. Uh, a lot of people were, were big fans. That's not a surprise to me. Yeah, the kids in the halls' influence spread kind of far and wide. Yeah, uh, and it's something I don't think that we acknowledge enough in Canada how popular and and how far-reaching their influence was. But tell me, we'll get to that. But tell me, uh, what did surprise you when uh, you were? You know what I was
1: surprised. I, surpri- I was surprised at um, just how far-reaching. There's uh, a few things. One is, I was surprised at the depth of the suffering of Scott Thompson. Like, and he doesn't like to be portrayed. He said, yeah. "I'm not comfortable being portrayed as a as a, a pity par- right. character. So you don't pity him because he's a he's a strong survivor." Yeah, yeah. But he had like uh, he uh, he had a terrible tragedy in his high school. There was a, a shooting at Brampton Centennial, one of the first big mass school shootings mm-hmm. years before Columbine. This was in Brampton, and he was there in in at the school and his favorite teacher who encouraged him to be creative got murdered by another classmate of his and he knew the guy who was the shooter i mean he didn't wasn't friends with him but Mm -hmm. he knew him and like that's a huge bit of business to know about somebody that i didn't know until i started talking to him and i remember when after i did the interview i talked to my wife and i said you'll never guess like this is like horrible." and then of course it comes into the story later and i maybe i don't want to ruin the but later on there's a lot of that trauma revisits yep. him over his career, you know, and just how much. Also, I didn't know that Scott didn't come out until much after university. Mm-hmm. And he was in the drama department at York University, and he still didn't come out. You know what I mean? Like, that's what he even says. That's yeah, weird. Yeah. Like, every actor I know is like, ha- every third one is out, yeah. you know. But the other thing I didn't know was just how much uh, Mark and Bruce in Calgary had started this thing called the audience and how big it was. Like, it was the biggest deal in Calgary. They basically put Calgary comedy, they were the Calgary comedy scene. Yeah, yeah. And then that's why they came to Toronto. And I didn't realize just how much of their drive brought them in to meet up with Bruce, uh, with uh, Mark, uh, sorry, Kevin and yeah. Dave, there's so many names, right. and and then Scott, who joined last, I didn't realize just how much of their energy drove the Toronto kids in the hall. Like, they they brought the Calgary drive with them, and right. it's, a lot of it is Bruce, because Bruce is a very driven guy, and you've, he's a very creative guy, and he's... he's um, but he really also says, we're going to do it. We're going to do it right. Right. You know, and everyone's like, OK, because they trust him because he actually has great attention to detail and they allow they get to be funny around and do. And it's it's beautiful. I,
0: I just saw him do a one man show Bruce. within the last year. Bruce yeah. McCullough do a one man show. And it was genius. It really was uh, such a pleasure to sit there for an hour uh, on stage. He told stories about his life. He talked about Gord Downey. He was very tight yeah, with. Yeah, very close to Gord. And and it was really an incredible show. And it was different than the kids in the hall, though. It felt different to me. Uh, it 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 felt more, I don't know, more personal. It 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 really really was
1: uh, outstandingly entertaining and good. Well, they've all um, they've all grown up a lot, you know. Like they uh, and. Uh, Bruce especially um, says that, you know, he's coming to terms with uh, sort of being more open to people because he was so driven that he didn't let on, you know, emotional things.
0: Listen, I think that's that is the story of that generation of our generation. Yeah. I think, you know, that that push uh, to get ahead, that push to be successful, that push to do something that sort of overtakes other aspects of people's lives.
1: Well, I was always personally more uh, more uh, uh, about getting uh, good friends than actually being successful, which is why I'm where I am today. <laughs> but uh, no, but no, but the, the truth is, yeah, it is true. Like I, I know, how about that? Judging your success, because yeah. Bruce talked about that. Judging one's success by how well they're doing in a career or whatever is a dangerous place to be because, yeah. and it is it's so true that if you're not happy in your home life, if you're not, if you're not just good with yourself, you got to make the stuff you do because you love to do it because... God knows there's no other there's really no guaranteed reward for anything sometimes you make money from something, sometimes you don't sometimes you get a claim for something sometimes you don't more often than not you don't yeah and how you fail, how elegantly you fail is actually how you live yeah. you know and and it's like it sounds heavy, but it's true well without risk there's there's no reward absolutely and,
0: and I know that certainly um you know. In the recent movie *Star Is Born*, I loved uh, one scene where Lady Gaga sings "La Vie Rose" yeah in in a in a gay club, and as it turns out, it's it's a, a turning point in the film. But what I loved about it was the motivation behind the character. She was doing it just because she loved it, yeah, not because it was going to get her anywhere in her career, not for any other reason other than just the
1: love of doing it. Absolutely, and yeah. Uh, yeah. But that brings me back to this story, mm-hmm. which is there's so many there's so many. F- failures in their own lives that led to, like, family failures. Yeah. Uh, four of the five kids in the hall came from the, or the children of alcoholics. And they're open about it. They, yeah. they talk about it. And, and then uh, one of them grew up in a diplomatic family, Mark, and he was all over the and, – and, you know, he's the one who didn't have the, you know, yeah. the, that upbringing. But he had a different kind of displacement. So they all had this kind of thing where what emerges is – there's two themes that emerge. One of, one of them is looking for that other family. Right. And, and actually they fought with each other a lot through the years when they were being creative because they're guys and because they all wanted to get screen time or stage time. But then eventually as they learned how to work with each other, that became the comforting family and they knew who to give space to and when to step back and when to let Bruce take the moment, when to let Dave take the moment. And they all really love each other's comedy and don't think they have to be like each other. Mm-hmm. And that's like any good band, you know, like you don't have to be Ringo if you're John, right? You know, and John doesn't have to be Ringo, you know. Um, uh, I mean, and you know, the other way around. But yeah. um, but but so they have now got a hard won family. That's, the term I use is hard won. They now look at each other as a very comforting unit. They can, and when you know Scott got sick later in in his career, uh, he's good now, but he he you know he had cancer and mm. the. Troop rallied around him at a time when he really needed them to, and there was no messing around.
0: The impression that I got from that was it's you fight with your brothers and your family when you're all living together, and in the yeah. early part of their career for yeah. the first... I don't know, 10 years, five be, years. Oh, whatever actually more
1: than that, about, about 15 years.
0: About 15 years. They were together all the time Yeah, and they fought. In, yeah. And then you, when you, when you split in the family, you go to college, you move away. You right, said right. all of a sudden you find that it's, it's a different way of mending bridges. And I think that's what's happened there. They don't see one another on a daily basis. I don't think they don't work no, together don't. every day. They don't have those aggravations probably, uh, that, that come with being in very close contact.
1: You know, at our, at our book event the other night in Toronto, um, Bruce came out, uh, Scott came out and did uh, Buddy Cole, which is <laughs> his elegant, yeah, yeah. Uh, flamboyant character. And he was doing a bit that he'd just written. And Bruce had never seen it before. And he'd sort of read through it before, but he'd never seen him do it. Right. And he's in the wings with me because we're letting Scott have yeah, a center. Yeah. And uh, I watched Bruce's face and the delight the, the, the the delight of, of of and some of the more daring moves that Scott made and and Bruce is like oh he went there you know and he's cheering and he's like you could tell there's no masking that thing yeah. it was it was admiration for his brother you know and it was definitely a thing and and you know they're all checking each other out at the end of it and it just they spoke of each other so glowingly and uh, it, it was just a nice feeling also because they're my guys now because mm-hmm. I spent I spent oh more than two years really sort of studying them and like that feeling you know.
0: And when we come back, we continue the conversation with Paul Myers. The book is called The Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy. Stay with us. The book is called The Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy. The author is Paul Myers. There's a foreword by Seth Myers. How did that happen?
1: Oh, this is really interesting. So around the time that I'm doing all the interviews, or starting to do the book, um, actually, I think I just signed the deal to do the book. Um uh, CISO, which is a, a, a short-lived uh, portal of NBC, mm-hmm. they were trying to create their own sort of on-demand comedy streaming service, and they had Python and they had The Kids in the Hall. Right, and so because that's a Lauren Michaels venture, ultimately they they were all five of them were on Seth Meyers' show, and Seth was fawning over them, and he was so thrilled, and I, I was really proud, like, oh my God, Seth Meyers, who I admire yeah, so yeah. much. I was a big supporter of Seth's show from the day it started, like, and some people were saying, oh, why are you watching Seth Meyers, it's not, he. Just, he's kind of dry, and he has, you know, he has, like, New York Times columnists yeah. on as guests, and I'm like, no, because it's fun. It's a yeah. He talks about behind the scenes comedy stuff, and and I always thought he was smart, and that's before he started doing the closer look things, which I think right. are genius. Um, and I, anyway, so I was excited that the guy I dug, Seth Meyers, was a huge fan of the Kids in the Hall. So I made a point of, since I was con- contacting NBC Universal a lot to try and sort of set up clips and things and get photographs, and I said, to, uh, you know, the publicist there, and I said, is there any chance that Seth Meyers could be available for an interview? Mm. And um, and then they said, we'll set it up, we'll set it up. And I said, I wonder if he would also consider writing the foreword. And almost within. A day or two, which never happens. Yeah. I got an email from Seth Meyers saying, what do you want? Wow. What do you need? Wow. What do you need? Wow. And And some people will ask you to do a template. Yeah. Like, to be honest, if you have a cover letter for a sponsor. I've had a yep. few green cards in my life. Yeah. And, uh, but he didn't ask. He, and I, he, he said, what do you want me to do? And I said, whatever you really want to do. Yeah. Because anything i was expecting a paragraph
0: yeah like a, yeah a half a page oh, i loved him. i grew up and they changed everything for me
1: yeah and so please enjoy this book or yeah. something like that. instead he writes this really neat story about how he worked as an intern because he's like you know he's a comedy guy for sure but he he also had to get jobs and yeah. one of his jobs was working at comedy central in the states where he his job i think it was mtv networks or something the whole company viacom and he had to sort of Watch videotapes and file them away, and and he got assigned the kids in the hall box, and basically goofed off for the rest of the summer. Uh, and uh, you know, he said, and I think he ended up getting fired or something. I remember that I, I, it's been a while since I've read the foreword, but I think the story is that he he ends up sort of being he realized that it was the best time he ever wasted.
0: Well, yeah, because uh, the the, the uh, as I recall the story, uh, he he spent too much time reading or looking at the tapes. And the, the he was an intern, and, and the sponsor said, "Well, he's not doing any work." Yeah, and out the door.
1: Yeah, but of course, now look at him today. Yeah, and uh, so what I love is, you know, and he had no qualms about having his name on that, and it just made me feel like I was right, like I, I'm right to spend this time doing this thing because look at Seth Meyers, dug them, you know. And,
0: and why do you think it is that they that they have made such an impact that people like Judd Apatow and Seth? Myers and and everyone Samantha B Samantha B uh, looks at them
1: and and says oh yeah they're the the Canadian Beatles of comedy. Uh, there's a couple of reasons. One is I think Americans often view this speaking for the American ones. Yeah. They often view Canadian things as the way we would view python like right. it's an exotic flavor. Yeah yeah. And secondly, I think there was a difference in our viewpoint I think Canadians are often the best observers of American culture because it's not really our culture, but we're really close to it. Yeah, we're standing – we we take a step away. I mean yeah. you live in a you've lived in yeah. the United States for a long time now. It's yeah, since ninety seven on and off in Vancouver for a while. But yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and so you can speak authoritatively about this. Well thank you. Uh putting on my authoritative voice yeah. now. But uh well the one thing actually I actually I think about a lot is like what I call translating Canadian to uh, American and vice versa, you know, not just spelling color with a U. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But, uh, um, but there is a thing where you think, you think everyone's thinking the same and then you find out quickly that it's only Canadians who think this. Right. And, you know, and, you know, we also say A, we really do say A, Mm -hmm. you know, and they call us on it. Like, it's a big deal. Like, like usually when I'm like caught off guard, I'll go, whoa, that guy almost hit me, eh? And they go, oh, you said A. (laughs) I'm like, no, no, he almost hit me. Like (laughs) you missed. Yeah. Yeah. The point
0: of the story here (laughs) is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Or you spelled color wrong. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, uh, but uh, so there's a lot of that. And uh, the Canadian identity for many years was us defining what we weren't. Right. You know, and now I'm really glad that Canada is pretty much – it's not an insular culture, but we definitely make stuff for ourselves now. And that that really translates well. Ironically, that travels well because, you know, you watch something from New Zealand. You want it to be from New Zealand. Mm -hmm. You don't want it to look like an American show made in New Zealand. Uh, But having said that, why the Kids in the Hall Impact? And they were doing things that were slightly edgier, not consciously because they they actually said if we do something edgy, if we think we're doing something edgy, we're probably going to blow it. Right. They just did stuff that made them laugh, but because they're from Calgary and the suburbs of Toronto and from Thunder Bay and Brampton and and you know and and Mark had been all over the world. Mark had lived in, you know, the Caribbean and yeah. Paris. He'd lived in Paris before he was twelve. Yeah, you know? his father
0: was a diplomat and they and, moved around a lot. Yeah, like and he
1: that. ends up like he and his mother took him to the Watergate hearings in nineteen seventy two. Like he sat in in the gallery watching Judge Sirica, you know, yeah. like and he knew all the names of all the all the senators. Like so that's that kind of Worldview is so different than somebody who might have grown up in, you know, the Midwest and moved to Hollywood, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 then Hollywood would also chop that up a little bit. Yep. So they kind of were exporting something. They spent some time in New York City, but they really just learned how to meet people in New York. They didn't really learn how to do comedy in New York. Right. And I think um, at the time they came on, they were on an exotic time slot on HBO, which was not really known for comedy other than stand up, and boxing and yeah. movies. You yeah, know. Yeah and then and then, so people found them sort of uh, as a rare entity. And in Canada, they were on this, you know, on the CBC, but it was late nightish comedy. and And in Canada, we had a whole different viewpoint. But in the states, it was exotic. And then they get on cbs. but uh, and then they really kicked in later when they were on comedy central in in the states. And that's when even after the show had gone off the air in the two thousands, that's when, they suddenly noticed everybody, all these younger people were watching it. And that's when the Fred Armisons and people discover it, you know?
0: I'm speaking with Paul Myers. The book is called The Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy, forward by Seth Meyers. Um, let's talk about the tapings. Yeah. I re- we talked about the live shows yeah. uh, at the Rivoli, the first time in 1985 that you saw them. Then the tapings of the television show, uh, they were... As I, remember, I went to one of them, I think. Yeah. And I remember at least one, maybe a, a handful, but I remember being at one. People would dance beforehand. They'd play really loud music yeah. and people would dance. And, yeah. and it was this kind of hyped up party it was
1: atmosphere a party almost. For sure. yeah. Well, I will say that they brought. You know, they taped on CBC Mutual Street, which is on the other side of Young Street. It's yeah. on the east east side of Young Street, and they they were from Queen Street West, so they they kind of brought the Queen Street West vibe right. over, and they brought the Shadowy Men from a Shadowy Planet. Yeah, yeah. And the Shadowy Men who did the you know Having an Average Weekend, which is the Kids in the Hall theme, yeah. and and they were the house band. So not only did they play the music on recording for the show. They were in the room, mm-hmm. and so keeping the audience pumped, they're on a platform like six or eight feet off the ground in the back of the uh, bleachers, yeah. and they're pounding away between takes. And then Dave Foley would come out before a scene, and he'd be dancing in front of the cameras, you know, shaking it out before they do the, the sketch. And they, you know, they kept the audience there for a while, so they had warm-up comics like Brent Butt and yeah. uh, uh, oh, the late Eric Tunney yeah. who was yeah. great, and uh, and uh, the comedy act uh, Alan George were yeah. uh, were there. And uh, uh, diff- various people like Elvira Kurt. And so a lot, they gave a lot of stand-ups a very good spot there because they had to warm up the crowd. And so we learned about a lot of other comedy while we were there. Right. So it was a real – I went to several tapings. And it was a long night, but you never felt like it. like Because yes. they would do like two hours, three hours, you know, but setups and stuff, you know. And that's it. Was fun. It was a huge party atmosphere. I missed a couple of really good parties. I remember someone telling me that the the wrap party for the final show at the CBC, like that when they finished on the studio floor, there was a big beer kegger. And I'd gone home that night. I right. didn't. I didn't know there was a party. So I'm the guy writing the book now, thinking I missed that.
0: I, I missed the big party. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And it, when the the show's translated to television, that kind of party vibe, I think came through in the show It yeah. felt different than other shows.
1: Well, they didn't, you know, I mean, they, they put the laugh track on there, but it was a real laugh track. It was, mm-hmm. it was the actual audience. Yeah. And uh, so they would play the film parts for the audience and take that laugh. They didn't right. add stuff. They didn't find source material. They, they There was people laughing and applauding and screaming, and it was all there, you know. And it... Um, uh, they were adamant about that, too. Like, you know, obviously they some shows wouldn't have a laugh track, but this was supposed to be a, a show, mm-hmm. a show-show, you know, performance. Yeah. Uh,
0: when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation uh, with Paul Myers. The book is called The Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the origins of some of the characters that we all sort of have grown to love over the last 30 years or more uh, from The Kids in the Hall. We'll talk about that. Everything you've ever wanted to know about the kids in the hall is contained in here. It's an authorized biography. I also want to talk about writing an authorized biography and uh, if there are things you can't write about, if there are rules uh, that would be different if you were just setting out and, and starting from scratch. That's when we come back. Stay with us. Paul Myers is my guest in studio. The book is called The Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy, uh, forward by Seth Myers. It's available wherever you buy fine books right now, online, Amazon.ca, all that kind of stuff. Uh, And it is a look at 30 years or more of the kids in the hall. It's an authorized look. Um, Tell me about writing the authorized biography. That means that you have the approval of
1: the kids in the hall to write this. They approached you. Traditionally, what an authorized biography means is that somebody at, like, head office will stamp it and say, you can't say this. What it also means, though, in this case, is more that they participated and that they tacitly endorse the story I'm telling. What— the guys are they're not super censorious is that the word Yeah. they're not super into saying you can't say that about me and also they're kind of lucky i'm not the kind of writer who wants dirt and right. i'm sorry for if you're a dirt fan i know there's lots of, go read vince neal's book again yeah. if you want <laughs> if you want that if yeah. you want Gene simmons yeah. you know what i write about and this is what i did i wrote a book about todd Rundgren, the music right. producer and it was the same thing i want participation and the idea that i will have access right right and uh and that way, I will uh, I'll be able to know that they're going to come back for you know follow up interviews, and that right. and that when it's time to sell it, also that they will they will not tell people not to buy it. That's
0: right. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know,
1: and that that's those those kind of what I wanted. And just what it means is I I'm getting all access, and they're going to help me find photographs mm-hmm. of their families and stuff like that, and, and
0: stories and, that have probably never been told anywhere before.
1: You hope. You I mean, hope. the yeah. problem with any career is that people have. You know, these guys are doing one man shows a lot now. So I find out that a lot of these stories, <laughs> some of these versions of these stories were alluded to in other things. But, right. but you know, they had told them to me two years ago. So it's but it's absolutely there's, there's there's lots of new stuff in here. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But I, it is interesting that uh, and the other thing is consensus. So you, you get a version of the story from one guy and then I get a version from Kevin yeah. that contradicts some of what Mark said. And then Mark says, and so we have to figure that stuff out. But because I have the authorized access, I can say, by the way, Kevin says this and blah, blah, blah. blah. And I don't talk about people's family lives. I really don't. And I didn't do that for any of the books I've written. And uh, I'm interested in process. I'm interested in artistic achievement. What makes people make art that they make? You know, and I am a musician and an artist myself. And I really don't care that much about gossip.
0: Yeah. Uh, I I do agree, though, that finding consensus can be difficult. I know in some of the books that I've written, uh, in particular one that I wrote about a Ken Russell movie called The Devils, that uh, yeah, book, yeah. Uh, because the events portrayed in the book happened over 40 years ago, yeah, and everyone that I was interviewing was in their 70s and 80s by the time yeah, you know, we yeah. were getting around yeah. there, and I remember one of the actors said, uh, I said, you know, I, I, I don't—the the way I've heard the story, and he, and he said to me, who's to say my version is wrong? So I had yeah, to yeah, 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 then yeah. figure out what to do, and I just printed both versions of the story.
1: Oh, that—well, yeah, you can do that. Yeah. I, I know that for my Todd Rundgren book, uh, Mark Farner of Grand Funk Railroad, <laughs> Todd produced uh, We're an American yeah, Band, yeah. which yeah. is like one of the classic singles— and uh, they had a record party. Uh, Capitol Records had thrown a party with a big cake for when it when it went gold. Right. And Mark Farner remembers Todd was such a cut up that he would grab the cake and throw it at everybody on the on the dais. Right? And Todd said, "He's insane. There's no way I did that. <laughs> uh, maybe Mark threw a cake at me. Right? You know." And so, you know that these guys have been going to their own like what they call dining out on these stories, yeah, yeah. and they they've all been having their drinks and you know bourbons and telling the story the way they remember it. Yeah. Like, you know, Mark Farner remembers Todd getting out of a limousine with silver boots on. I bet he did not. Yeah. But um, that's a good story, right? And... Uh, yes, party stories emerge over years, yes, right? They, yeah. get, they get polished and altered. And and by the time, you know, 20 years passes, the truth is obscured. So I usually will check with somebody in that case. In the case of that, because I had access to Todd Rundgren and Mark Farner, I would say, you know, I, and I wouldn't go back to Mark and say, by the way, Todd says you're yeah, fuller, yeah, you know, yeah. but, um, but uh, I would just put... Todd denies, the, or Todd doesn't remember it that way, but says, right. you know, and that way that way you're politely saying, you know, be careful here, rock star walking, <laughs> you know, but uh, in the case of the kids in the hall, there was only a couple of things. Mark gave me two and a half pages of corrections. And by the way, I love that. Yeah, yeah. You just love the idea when somebody says, no, that didn't happen. I don't remember saying that. Do you have proof of where I said that? And then I'll find it for him. And then, uh, or I'll check my notes and realize I had it wrong. Right. And that God, I love that. And that all the guys did get a chance to read it. But I will tell you, Bruce and I think Scott. Scott's read a bit of it. He, Scott said, "Be honest. I only read the parts about me." Yeah. <laughs> and, and Bruce said, "I don't. I don't usually read stuff about myself. Right. So maybe I'll get around to it." He goes, "I suspect people will tell me the parts that you know yeah, yeah. That pertain to me." Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, Mark. I think Mark also read all the stuff about himself, but he at least gave me two pages of notes. Yeah. Dave just trusts me. I've known Dave the longest. And, you know, I was at some event in San Francisco with him and he said, I don't know. I just figured you were gonna, you're were you not going to mess me up and you're probably going to tell the story the way it happened. You right. know, and which is, you know, that's a, that's a kind of endorsement except for the I don't know part. But uh, no, but I mean, and I, these guys, I don't I don't want to presume that someone loves me, right. but these guys know that I'm not going to mess them up. Well,
0: and they approached you.
1: Yeah, kind yeah. of. Well, it was kind of a mutual thing. Yeah. In the case of this one, I had been saying for years, you know, let me know when it's time to do the book. Right. And I, I think I had said in a conversation, you know, I'd just done my third book. And maybe Kevin had said something like, so, yeah, you know, are you still going to do a book about us someday? And I said, I, is this the time to everybody? And I wrote them a really nice letter, you know, because – I wanted them to know that I that I do care about them, and I do want to tell the story as a story, mm-hmm. and that it is an important story, and it's 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 important for Canada to know about their culture, but it's also important for young comedians who want to know how stuff happened. Like I, I read all those other books about like the, the the origins of Saturday Night Live, the origins of Sid Caesar show. To me, this is a bit like that. This yeah. is so Sid Caesar's show for the people who don't know was a show in the
0: fifties. I think uh, in the fifties, which uh, you know what I don't think I've ever actually seen it. I've seen because, a few of them. Uh, yeah, because they're hard to see. They were on kinoscopes, of scopes, And right? they didn't they, keep tapes in those days. They didn't keep tapes in those days. They were done
1: live. But the thing I want to point out, oh, sorry, is that Neil Simon, Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner. Woody Allen. Woody Allen and Doc Simon, Neil yeah. Simon's brother. <laughs> Doc. Yeah. Uh, and uh, probably some other people that we know that I've forgotten. And they all wrote on this show. So this think tank of comedy legends was the writer's room. Well, and they gave the kids in the hall their name. Perfect. That's a good tie-in that I wasn't even thinking yeah. of. But absolutely, and they, they they would talk about the jokes from the kids in the hall down right. the hall. Yeah, you know.
0: yeah. Who were the who were the the people that didn't get into the
1: writers' room who were selling jokes for uh, yeah. ten bucks uh, 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 a crock? Yeah. I think Woody Allen was actually one of the. He them. was. Yeah, Woody yeah. Allen
0: was a kid in the hall. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There you go. And and so so what I like about that to me, I wanted to put. Well, I think the word pantheon is going to yes. come up here. Yes. Warning, uh, <laughs> the pantheon of comedy. Right. Uh, I want this. To be the installment that covers where the kids in the hall fit in. Right. that's
0: it. We're talking about the book, The Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy. I'm speaking with the author, Paul Myers. Uh, let's talk about
1: some of the characters.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, because uh, the head-crushing guy, yeah. Canadian legend. Uh, tell me about uh, well, some of the... Well, his
1: name is Mr. Tizik, Mr. And Tizik. And Mr. Tizik is based on the voice of an Eastern European gentleman who lived in a an apartment building that uh, Mark McKinney lived in. And he would hear him talking and, and he would be yelling at the Leafs. Look at those bombs! They cannot play hockey. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, one time they were on a date. Uh, actually, Mark and uh, Kevin went on a date with two other uh, women yeah. and uh, they, the date wasn't going very well. I guess double dates are often awkward. Yep. And, um, and, uh, uh, Mark started like uh, I guess he was starting to sort of like act out a little bit, and he was saying like teasing the the, the girl he was with, and he was sort of like pinching, right. looking between his fingers and pretending to be pinching her head, and saying and just to try and get a, a reaction. He was like, right. "I crush your head," <laughs> and the voice that came out was the Eastern European man. Right. And then he did that somewhere else, and he was somewhere else on like Bay Street in Toronto, and he started doing it to businessmen. <laughs> then they go they go to New York to write the pilot for the TV series, and they're they're stuck, and they're. Lauren Michaels is telling them, you've got to write solid material. So they overwrote. They had more sketches than they needed, but they couldn't – they weren't all going to work. And the stage stuff wasn't all going to work for TV. Right. So they needed a visual thing. Suddenly, uh, Kevin says to Mark, remember that head-crushing thing you did? Remember that? That could be a film thing because we could shoot the camera through. Yeah, so yeah. it's like your POV, your point of view. And you could see then – and the guy could just go around crushing people's heads. And the kids in the hall also don't like – they would make fun of business culture. So the idea of crushing a businessman's head is is a metaphor for the entire – like eight sketches of the, – they are about businessmen being kind of cut down to size. Yeah, yeah. So – it was genius. And Mark, to his credit, said, You're right. That's a good idea. And they shot through the, you know, his fingers. And now even now they do this with a video camera. They, yeah, they will... on
0: on stage. I yeah. saw their their reunion tour. Yeah. And yeah. They, they did it on stage. And the reaction that it got from the audience yeah. was so fun. Yeah. It was just one of those things of of pure joy from an audience seeing yeah. something that's so simple and yeah. so brilliant. And, and just something anyone can do.
1: And one more thing about that, is that in those tours now, they, they use it to make fun of each other. So Mark, at the end of the show, will kind of, you know, uh, cut the other guys down and say, you know, look at you, Dave Foley. Uh, two words for you, poker show. <laughs> That's right. You know, and, right. And, and, oh, Scott, you're so something, 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 you know, like, uh, and, and uh, you know, and... And then I guess he he crushes his own head at the end. But yeah. so it's a just it's, it's a it's a great way to throw a little humility in as well. So now they not just crushing other people; they crush yeah. their own heads. You yeah. know. Uh,
0: we've only got a minute left. Um, how does it feel to have the book out? It was a oh, long so time. It was a couple of years, at least yeah. more yeah. than that. I think
1: It's about yeah two years.
0: Yeah, yeah. So tell me what it's like to have this book out
1: now. It's really good, and I I'm so used to writing in obscurity and just thinking that you know you know, a few niche fans are gonna like something and then the reaction has been incredible. Like it it's got, got like the pre orders were great and the online reaction on Twitter and, and Globe and Mail
0: for Big Rave in the Globe and Mail. Big
1: Rave in the Globe and Mail and you know and just just I actually don't even know how to handle it. I think I said I might have said this to you. I'm not sure. Said, I'm not sure how I can handle winning. Right. Like because it <laughs> looks like I'm kind of winning. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess what I do is I basically say thank you a lot and just don't get too hung up on the winning part. But like, but the truth is, it is nice to know that I labored, and some people and the fans especially are like. Like the, the president of the fan club is a, lo- a lovely woman named Tavi Octavia Phillips, and she's in New Jersey or New York, and she. Um, she read it ahead of time because I wanted her to, I wanted to, did yep. I do good? Did I yep. do good? And she was like, this is the book we've all needed. And, and I, I, I cried because it was like, oh, my God, I wanted to write the book that if you're a fan and if you're a student and if you're just like if you're proud of these guys yeah. or if, even if you hate them and want to figure out why you hate them. I mean, like, <laughs> uh, that's crazy. I know. But, um, but anyway, so it's been great. It's a great feeling to have it out.
0: I've been speaking with Paul Myers. The book is called The Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy. It's available wherever you buy books. It is the authorized biography of The Kids in the Hall. There's a foreword by Seth Myers and many words in between by Paul Myers. Uh, thanks so much for being here. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks to Andre on and the board and thanks to you for listening. We'll talk again next week.